Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kumar and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And my name is Dr. Rahul Demania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Our episode today is dedicated to the differentiation and management of diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Eric Fellner. Dr. Fellner is a professor of pediatrics, pediatric endocrinology at the Emory University School of Medicine and an adjunct professor of chemical and biomedical engineering at Georgia Tech. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start with our patient case. We have a 15-year-old male who presents with a one-week history of increased urination. He has otherwise been healthy. However, a week prior, he had a viral upper respiratory infection. On presentation, he is found to be disoriented, tachycardic, with an exam notable for delayed peripheral capillary refill and cool extremities. In assessing the patient, you also note deep, labored respiration. Labs confirm hyperglycemia with a serum glucose of 850, mild acidosis, as well as 2 plus ketones. Interestingly, his CPK is also elevated. A crystalloid fluid bolus is started. Dr. Fellner, we are very excited to have you join us today to discuss both hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, which we will refer to in this podcast as HHS, and diabetic ketoacidosis, which we will refer to as DKA. We wanted to organize this episode for our listeners to first focus on diagnostic frameworks, and then we will transition and move into PICU management strategies for both of these conditions. Dr. Fellner. How would you define HHS, and can you begin to highlight to our listeners key distinctions from DKA? So HHS has some uh, specific parameters that have been defined, and for the most part, I don't really think about the numbers, so to speak, other than having the global hyperglycemia, hyperosmolality, and uh, mild or usually closer to absent ketosis and minimal, if any, acidosis. Now, if you think about kind of the textbook definition, it's probably a sugar of over five or 600. It's uh, osmolality well above 300 and probably even over 330. And even being able to tolerate some mild uh, metabolic acidosis and some mild ketosis. But I guess a a lot of most of the patients that we see have very high blood glucose levels, uh, very high serum osmolality levels, and virtually no ketones and minimal, if any, acidosis. Bicarbonate, uh, I don't think of all the time, but in general, they usually have a a closer to normal bicarbonate level, definitely above 15. And just to highlight DKA, what would be key distinctions? I mean, the main distinction for diabetic ketoacidosis is the acidosis and the ketosis. I mean, we've seen type 1 diabetics have sugars barely above 200, and those are close to 1,000, even though you would guess that the HHS typically have a higher blood glucose than the diabetic ketoacidosis patients. But for DKA, the key is ketosis and acidosis. And that would be the main difference in ketosis, definitely more than trace and definitely probably even more than small on the urine dipstick, but a beta hydroxy well above, well above four or five millimoles per liter. I think these laboratory findings are especially important to grasp as the management strategies between these two conditions are similar. However, they have their own nuances. So as we continue to contrast these two entities, can you shed light on the pathophysiology which drives the laboratory manifestations? 
Sure. So I guess I can start with, with DKA first. I mean, diabetic ketoacidosis, there's a lack of insulin. There's a complete deficiency of insulin. In those with HHS or even type 2 diabetes who have maybe a ketosis-prone component, most of them make some insulin or enough insulin. It's just not enough to really perform the job of uh, shuttling glucose intracellularly. But for the DKA, a lack of insulin, absolute deficiency, because to prevent ketosis for anybody, you need a very minimal amount of insulin. And this is why our patients who come in in diabetic ketoacidosis are, are established patients. And look, I've been looked at with a crooked eye many times when I basically walk in the room and tell the family, you know, I'm not interested in your story. I don't really say it like that, but I'm not interested to hear that they didn't miss any injections because to prevent ketosis and acidosis in a type one patient, you need a bare minimum of insulin. They didn't eat 50 pieces of cake. They didn't drink 10 Cokes. They may have done that. But as long as they took even a basic amount of Lantus, even a minimal amount of Humalog, they may have high sky, sky high sugars, but they don't get ketotic and acidotic. And, um, you know, we use typical things like, well, maybe you gave your shot, but it all leaked out or maybe you missed. I mean, uh, it, it's odd looking at it that way because it doesn't come off as being the, the nicest human being in the world. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be unpleasant. I just, it's so tiring because these kids require so minimal amount of insulin to prevent this. But that's DKA. I mean, I think that's a, a pretty easy thought process. But from the pathophysiology, you can't drive glucose intracellularly. You need insulin to drive it into your fat, your muscle, and your adipose tissue. And basically, this glucose just floats around the bloodstream waiting to get out. And the only way it's going out is when all the, the water in the body or all the liquid that the kids will keep drinking helps send it to the kidneys to flush it out. And of course, the kidneys with their maximum absorption of glucose is usually about 180 milligrams per deciliter. So once you're above 180, you start dumping glucose. But again, from the pathophysiologic standpoint for DKA, lack of insulin, and then without the carbohydrates as an energy source, then the body has to shuttle to another energy source and it'll move to fats and breakdown of fats results in ketosis or ketones. And when you build up ketones, they're acid or they become, uh, you know, you develop a lot of acidosis. And so that's kind of the whole pathophysiology in a relative nutshell uh, for DKA. For HHS, it's a little tougher to understand. Obviously, this is much more common in adults, much more common in overweight individuals. Uh, but, you know, just with the onslaught of obesity in the last 10 to 20 years, probably 20 years, you know, we're seeing a fair amount, which means the intensivists are seeing a fair amount because these kids come in with ridiculously high blood sugars. And it's not so much, they're not high because of insulin deficiency. They're high because they have no water in their body. They have zero. It's a GFR problem. It's a glomerular filtration rate problem. And so they come in so dry. If you give them enough fluid, you know, their glucose will cut in half. In fact, we just had a child kid yesterday, 1700 was initial glucose, a couple liters of fluid. He was down to 600. But the point is in that pathophysiology, it's more of being so dry is my guess. And if they get acidotic, it makes me a little concerned and they're ketotic that we're not dealing just completely with HHS. This is where this ketosis prone type two diabetic falls in. But um, obviously if they're not eating, which many of them are not, they can just get generate ketones from starvation ketosis. So it becomes a very difficult mixed picture in most of these kids. But for the HHS, I'm looking for the very overweight child who looks like that child should be a type two patient based on ethnic, you know, whatever the, uh, the ethnic or racial status is because type two diabetes is much more common in African-American, Latin American and native Indians really any individuals of color, whereas type one is more common in Caucasians. But getting back to this uh, HHS picture of type two, the child looks very sick or the patient looks very sick, but they typically look like they should be a type two patient based on their body habitus and family history. 
Uh, most of these kids have a family history that somebody has type two diabetes. So, but again, I, I can't explain the pathophysiology as well as I probably, as anyone would like uh, for HHS, but it's mostly doing to just complete dehydration and excessive urination. Thank you so much for highlighting both of these conditions and the various components which play into the pathogenesis. I think it's really important for our listeners to really understand that both VKA and HHS are systemic conditions that not only affect the blood sugar, but it affects, excuse me, the intravascular volume as well as the GFR and the kidney filtration. So Dr. Fellner, we as clinicians, when we get these patients in the ICU, are there any specific labs uh, which are important for us to send in these patients before uh, the endocrine team uh, consults on them? I mean, it's, you know, I, I kind of, when I hear that question, I think, well, I mean, I think pretty much everybody knows, but maybe not everybody knows, but obviously the comprehensive metabolic panel is going to be pretty simple from the standpoint of not just the basic electrolytes, because what we focus on in endocrinology, obviously, is the, what's the corrected sodium for the hyperglycemia? What's the glucose? What is the potassium? These are probably the three most important laboratory values for endocrinologists, because we know that giving individuals a tremendous amount of intravenous insulin will drive potassium intracellularly. Most of the DKAs, in fact, all of the DKAs that show up are total body potassium depleted, even if they have a serum potassium that's normal or above normal, because the acidosis has caused the, the exchange of the uh, hydrogen ion for the potassium extracellularly. So when you give a lot of insulin, you're going to drive whatever potassium is there intracellularly. So those are why we focus on those. The bione and creatinine is not as critical for me or for endocrinologists, I think, because so much of the BUN creatinine is so easy to just dismiss as, well, they're so dehydrated. Unless they had a very low BUN and a high creatinine where you think there's some real inherent kidney problem, those are the three main labs that, that obviously I like to know. If you think about other organ systems, that's where the BUN creatinine comes in with, uh, with acute kidney injury. Or even if you look at, uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, amylase and lipase levels being collected for, um, you know, for looking at, at uh, pancreatic enzymes or pancreatic uh, organ injury other than just the uh, insulin producing cells or specifically the exocrine pancreatic function. But I think those are, are, are pretty much what we're looking for. I mean, you know, that whether we look at creatinine phosphokinase for muscle injury, it's another just another organ that can be damaged. But I think what we figured if in these severe acidotic states, you know, I think about taking all of your organs and just bathing them in acidic fluid. And what do you think is going to happen to those organs? They're not going to function normally. And so, but we, we just don't see these as long-term problems as long as you guys or as the intensivists, you know, take care of the patient, get them back to hydration status and get their sugars and their acidosis cleared. Uh, we just don't see many of these as problems. Obviously the hematologic system, if you want to think about clots, uh, again, some of our bigger kids are probably more at risk for, for developing thromboses or, or clots. And as dry as you are, that would be kind of the, the real reason to be worried about that. And we've, we've done that on occasion. We've had to use, uh, again, this is all relatively new for me. I don't get too many kids on, uh, you know, requiring heparin or, or uh, I guess it's Lovenox. But the bigger the child is, and also it's not done anymore, it hasn't been done recently. I know it's not done here, but but femoral lines were a big source of problems for clots and thrombotic events. And so I know that, that at least in this center, um, that doesn't happen, but it's pretty easy to pull the literature and see that uh, that was a big source of thrombosis. That's a really great summary. And I think for our listeners, it's important for the take-home electrolytes to be uh, sodium, potassium, as well as glucose, and then understanding that acidosis has an effect on end organ function. 
Correct. I mean, I, I might have left out chloride and, and I, I kind of do that on purpose, even though chloride probably has some risk to the AKI, the high chloride level, because it probably contributes to this uh, renal tubular acidosis picture or this AKI picture. But, you know, I, I try not to get excited about, or I don't want to say care, but not, not get worried about things that I just have so little control of. And it, it, everything becomes down to a risk benefit ratio. And I, I just know if we give them normal saline most of the time and we're giving them high chloride in addition to high sodium, they're going to be fine eventually. <laughs> I mean, in the next couple of days, and that chloride is not going to do anybody any, any real damage that I can see. Whereas if you use a more of a hypotonic solution, you just have too many risks that they're not well-founded, but there's enough information in the literature over the last 50 years that, uh, that getting uh, cerebral edema or having osmotic fluid shifts could come up during treatment. So I think we just avoid any risk and we take the risk for the AKI with the high chloride. Dr. Fellner, as a pioneer in the improvement of DKA fluid management, can you shed some light on how the management of HHS is different from the classic DKA? So one of the, one of the interesting points is we don't always know if somebody's HHS or DKA right off the bat. So it's hard to, it's hard to just uh, all right, we know this kid's HHS. I mean, some of the times the intensivist is talking to a doc out in the middle of nowhere. We're involved in some small fashion. If you can't see the patient and you don't have the labs in front of you, I've just learned to, to have a tough time trusting a lot of things. And so I think starting anybody off on, on three-bag therapy is always simple because if somebody has severe hyperglycemia and even a touch of acidosis who's very sick or altered, or then you start with that three-bag therapy where you're giving insulin in one bag. And actually most of them aren't getting dextrose early because their sugar's so high, but you start with the, the non-dextrose bag containing uh, usually normal saline with potassium and phosphate in it, as long as their potassium and phosphate levels aren't above the normal upper limit of normal. And then when we start to get the feeling that we have a probably more of an HHS individual, we can easily cut back on the insulin because the acidosis already isn't that in impressive. And if it is impressive, it doesn't matter to me how big the child is or how much they don't look like a type one patient. They probably need the the 0.1 per kilo per hour, or at least the, the higher the higher end uh, insulin. But if we're pretty confident that they're an HHS patient or maybe even a type two who for some reason has some acidosis, we can cut that insulin in half because the, the main issue with the HHS patients is fluid. You just hydrate the heck out of them. And their glucose tells you that. They're, they don't have a high glucose because they ate more cake than the, the kid who has type one diabetes and came in with a sugar of 300. It's all a concentration. So it's just a matter of how much glucose per water you have. And so I think in those kids, that's why volume is so important in those patients. And if you cut the insulin down, then you may have a theoretical risk or less of a risk of avoiding excessive fluid uh, delivery to a kid uh, who's also getting IV insulin, which the cerebral edema issue always kind of hangs over our heads as to, can we give him a ton of fluid? We're giving him IV insulin. Is he a risk for cerebral edema? And I think that's the big challenge because those kids tend to be much sicker. The HHS have a much higher risk of mortality, especially in, in a center. And I say like ours, it's not really to brag, but I mean, we got a million kids, it seems like at this center, and we see this all the time. And we have very few issues with type one patients, but we, we do have our fair share of, of longer term issues with our, uh, our HHS kids. Dr. Fellner, you are a pioneer of uh, triple bag therapy. And I think uh, what's important for us to uh, recognize is that, as you mentioned, some of the times these patients are going to be relatively undifferentiated and we have limited information and we're going to have to make some important calls. And I think that uh, starting patients on insulin 
is a good take-home point. And then subsequently stratifying your fluid management based on whether or not their DK or HHS uh, will be important. You did mention the risk for cerebral edema. Do you mind talking a little bit about the data behind fluid administration, DKA, HHS, as well as the correlation with the neurological outcomes? Sure. I can definitely talk about the fluid management and DKA probably a little bit, or at least with some real, at least data and references to back me up. Uh, I can't, I don't have as much for HHS, but but I, this is where the three-bag therapy came up during my fellowship in uh, UT Southwestern in Dallas. I was there in training from 94 to 2000. And really, we, we just couldn't understand why it was so complicated to change bags and throw out bags and wait forever for things. And, and we basically determined that the key was, and we also found that I don't even want to say residents or fellows or attendings were making mistakes on fluids, but in the old system, there was this calculate 50% in the first eight hours and the other and doing all the math. And we'd have people getting off by a factor of 10 on some of their fluids just by the miscalculation. So, I mean, maybe I get credit for it, but obviously my, my mentor, Perrin White, who's a CAH expert, uh, not a diabetes person, but he was my mentor during fellowship. And he came up with this plan. And I mean, he came up to help implement this plan and we just we did it to really cut down, number one, on errors. But the only thing back in the, in the mid-90s that was really concerning for cerebral edema was the fluid. And Stephen Duck, and I can't remember if he was Wisconsin or Milwaukee, was one of the two places, but he had the duck rule, the four liters per meter squared per day. And he discovered, and again, the, some have refuted that over the years about the amount of fluid delivery, but four liters per meter squared per day. If you got received over that, he discovered that those kids were higher risk for getting cerebral edema if you receive more than four liters per meter square per day. So what we did to make life easy on everybody is we just picked a number that we know would be less than four liters per meter square per day. And that is if four liters per meter, if, uh, if the basic maintenance fluid calculation, the rule that almost every pediatric uh, individual uses, whether you use the, the 50, 20, 10, the 4, 2, whatever way you want to use, that's based on 1.5 liters per meter squared. That's where that came from. Now, for kids under 10 kilos, it's not really useful because there's a big discrepancy there. But if you have a big enough kid, and again, most of the kids outside of the, the baby age are, are going to calculate, you can calculate total fluids basically by dividing 4 divided by 1.5. And so in theory, you can give as much as 2.75 liters per meter squared per day to kids, and they don't violate the four liters per meter squared rule. But we, we took it even a many steps further. We just said two times maintenance because everybody can calculate maintenance fluids in pediatrics, whether you're the medical student, whether you're the intern, here's the equation, figure it out. What's two times that? All right, I can't go above this number per hour. Now, the other thing that we threw in there was if you get bolus infusions of normal saline, really because you're not so you're tachycardic, but for your perfusion, because the tachycardia and the, and the hypotensive don't usually improve regardless of how much fluid you give, unlike gastroenteritis and a lot of these other uh, dehydrated states, because the uh, glucagon, the epinephrine, growth hormone, all the counter-regulatory hormones are jacked sky high because the kid's so darn sick and acts as if they have no glucose in, in their system because nothing's getting into the cell. So. We chose this and made it pretty simple, but we didn't care about the bolus infusions. If somebody's going to get a 20 per kilo or even up to 40 per kilo, because somebody seeing them says, hey, they're not perfusing, that doesn't count as their fluid. That's just to kind of semi-tank them up. But once you start giving them fluid, if you just stick to the two times maintenance, it's impossible to go over the four liters per meter squared. Now, I make a big stink about that here because that's what we based everything on. But we also used the point that it was so easy to do. 
and we weren't getting mistakes. Correct this in six hours, four hours or what? And it's not even necessary. And then, but I think that's how that came up as far as the fluid shifts go. Now, we did a retrospective study. The paper that we published, unfortunately, was retrospective because like, especially what I see you guys do in the intensive care unit, you are changing care and you're, you're, you're assessing it right then and there. And so you can make, they're not real formal perspective uh, studies, in, in, so to speak, but they're retrospective, but you know what you're doing during it. And so it's hard to, I mean, at least tease out the data in those situations. But we took, we were retrospective, old method versus new method. And we found everything was positive in the new method. How quick they got to DKA, how quick they got cleared of DKA, how less money it cost to do it, how few changes were occurring and how how many mistakes were made. The only thing that didn't change was that I can't remember, I'm already blanking on the number of kids we looked at each group. There might've been 30 or 40, but one kid in each group got cerebral edema. So it doesn't necessarily change that, but what it does is it sure eliminates all the other risks making mistakes, changing bags, waiting time, all these things. So that's why we made kind of a, a big deal about it. And I left Dallas in 2000. I took my first job at New Orleans at Tulane and everybody implemented it there. I covered it Scott, at uh, Ochsner and Louisiana Children's and, and I just got everybody to adopt it. And then I came here in 2003 at Emory and I've been here, what is that, 18 years? And I pretty much did the same thing here. And I just kind of ran around with it and most people didn't seem to have a problem with it. But it definitely puts you at less theoretical risk for problems. I shouldn't even say DK uh, for cerebral edema, but for problems. Dr. Fellner, shifting from fluids to uh, insulin, do you mind commenting on low dose versus standard dose insulin therapy in DKA, as well as key distinctions of insulin therapy between DKA and HHS? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, if you, if you, now, if you wanted, if you were just talking about DKA and HHS, because there's also concern for wanting to do some low dose in DKA as opposed to HHS. And I, maybe I'll get to that next, but I, I know that the DKA and HHS is really the HHS. The main reason it's less is because it's not completely an insulin problem, because if it were completely an insulin problem, these guys with their sugars in the thousands plus would have terrible acidosis, terrible ketosis, but they make enough insulin, or at least they get enough insulin. They're sensitive to at least a minimal amount of insulin to really prevent the ketosis or the significant ketosis and acidosis. So unlike the type one who I continue to, to get on everybody about, I'm not interested if their glucose is a little low, we can always give them dextrose, but I don't want their body in a pH of 7.1 for very long if I don't have to have it there. And so as everybody knows, if, if I see a, an insulin drip get stopped for an hour or however much time it is when the pH is so low, because the glucose was a little low, I, I get disturbed. <laughs> I, get, I get a little angry because just give them a boatload of glucose. You can do it. We can go to two times maintenance of D10 or even D12 and a half. And if you're in the unit, you guys know how to put central lines in and we can give more if we needed to. So it's the whole point of, of the type ones got to ha- have to have insulin and all the calculations are based on weight. So when that type one comes in 50 kilos, well, two months ago, that child was 65 kilos. So we're still giving, we're still never giving 0.1 per kilo per hour, in my opinion, on anybody. And, uh, which gives me a chance to knock the current system. It's not necessarily here. It's probably everywhere where there's a computer system. If you put in the weight, somebody will figure out the insulin. I don't want that. I just look at a kid and I go give him 15 an hour, which is 15 cc's an hour. But you put in the computer, half these kids are on decimal points. And it just, it's very disheartening to see that, but I'm starting to get off track a little bit because, but it is, it is how I feel on most of the type one patients. And the type two, once you give them enough fluid, probably in about five to six hours, 
whether you gave them insulin or not, their sugar is going to be not close to normal, but a whole lot closer to, to 200 than it was when it started. And their goal is not so much to get their sugar normal, but you don't have to do much for their acidosis. Whereas in type one, one goal, get rid of the acidosis. I mean, we showed in the paper that if the goal was to get their sugar normal, I mean, if I didn't care about anything other than getting their sugar normal, I'll do it in, in an hour because I'll give them a hundred units IV of, of humal, you know, I'll give them a ton of it and their sugar will respond, but their acidosis will not. And so you have to do it a little more gradually in the type one, but the type two, they need very little insulin anyway. Hope that's what you're asking for. That's a great uh, summary and uh, highlight between HHS and DKA. For DKA, the key is insulin therapy, whereas for HHS, it's all about replacing their intravascular volume. That is correct. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Fellner, in our uh, patient case, we noted that the patient was becoming progressively altered. What are the risk factors for development of cerebral edema? And what are the ICU management pulls related to cerebral edema and DKA? I mean, the, the risk factors for cerebral edema, you will, they're, they're almost, well, they used to be a few more than what the typical listing is. I mean, more than four liters per meter squared was always just ingrained in our brains. But I think as you can see from recent publications, it's just not even listed as a concern, which worries me because if people aren't worried about it, they're just going to keep giving more and more and too much fluid. But, but I still believe that that's a risk. But the main risks are going to be, you know, how sick is the patient? Okay, well, how are you going to determine how sick they are? Well, first off, you're going to determine how sick they are by what their, what their acidosis level is. But more importantly, what's their PCO2? I always want to know what the PCO2 is. So if you have a, a very low PCO2, well, that's the normal response for metabolic acidosis. The problem is if you get it too low, that just shows you how sick the patient is. And again, that, you know, all in all, you know, low PCO2 is probably one. They've mentioned it in every meta-analysis that you see. I know the glazers are real good at, have done these. Uh, one of the glazers is an ED doc and one, uh, one is an endocrinologist. It's a husband and wife team that they've been writing about this for 20 years. And they're really good, but they go through these meta-analysis and they always show this high BUN. And I get, okay, well, yeah, the drier you are, the sicker you are. And again, this is type one. The one that really seems to be one that, and you can't prevent high BUNs, right? Patient shows up with what they show up. You can't prevent low PCO2 unless you get a hold of that kid right away and you manage the event or manage their breathing whatever way you want, which most of the time they don't need. You know, as long as you correct their acid base status, then they'll fix their breathing. But the one that you can prevent is the use of bicarbonate. And it's tough because if you're in the middle of nowhere, uh, and I say middle of nowhere, meaning you're in a small center in a small area, and most of the time, it's very rare that there's a pediatric specialist or a pediatric, even ED doc or a pediatrician working in a big hospital, I mean, in a hospital that serves a small community. And so they know how to take care of adults. There's more adults that come in than kids. And when they see a low pH or metabolic acidosis and a very low pH, boom, it's time to give bicarbonate. And I'll tell you, you can see giving bicarbonate also is a, high, is a risk for cerebral edema. Now, those are three things, probably the BUN, the cerebral, uh, the, uh, the uh, giving bicarbonate, the high BUN and the low PCO2. Another one that kind of gets forgotten about because we have so many new kids with diabetes these days is age. And if you're five years and below and you show up in DKA, you have a, a very high risk of getting cerebral edema. And again, it's probably related to the minimal amount of fluid shifts that are needed to really cause, I mean, the middle amount of the minimal amount of excess fluid that you end up giving to cause these fluid shifts in the brain for these kids. 
but I think those would be the main ones I would uh, I would think about. But the bicarbonate, we even we have this protocol that we developed. I said in Dallas, it was a 15 page thing. We would hand it to all the residents, and they would be on at night, and they would flip through every page. All right, what do we do here? And it went all the way up to transitioning to sub Q insulin. But it was because the residents, at least when we trained at that time, we just didn't have a lot of fellows and a lot of ability to take care of patients in big units like we have these days. But the bicarbonate, we even left it out there. We said, you know what? If the pH is under seven and somebody taking care of that kid is worried about cardiac contractility, we get it. If you want to use it, fine, but you better use close to the right dose. And that is, that's even the bigger mistake is that we see just these astronomical numbers, they 50 milliequivalents of, of bicarbonate delivered for a kid that probably should have needed five based on his body weight. So, but those are concerns. But the reality is if you look at all the concerns, it still, it doesn't come down to a number. It comes down to how sick was the patient, which is what I think even our retrospective study looking at triple bag therapy versus single bag with multiple changes. And they have the same because you're going to get cerebral edema. I firmly believe you woke up that day, whatever you did, uh, whatever you did incorrectly or whatever, you were going to get cerebral edema no matter how quickly somebody got a hold of you. And I, and I just think that we just don't have enough patients. We just don't get enough cases of cerebral edema and we have tons of DK. Those are so my- Dr. Fellner, so, uh, you know, most of our patients uh, end up in some community ER before they're transferred uh, to our uh, tertiary care children's hospital. Uh, what's your advice to ER physicians and even uh, ICU fellows taking those transport calls uh, when they get a sick uh, DKA patient? So when they get a sick DKA patient, there are things that, that I know I can tell anybody how to do anything, or at least I feel comfortable as long as the person can understand what I'm saying. Do this, do that, do this. Those are things I can tell them to do. What I'm not good at doing, even if I was at the bedside, is putting an IV in. I'm not there. That, that's not what I do. And, um, you know, and, and so I need them to be able to put IVs in and to listen to what the instructions are. They've got to call somebody. Almost nobody should make a mistake by putting a couple IVs in if they can get them in and giving some normal saline as a fluid bolus and then getting on the phone with somebody that knows what they're doing. But there used to be statistics for mortality and morbidity for DKA in kids. And it was a pretty good uh, statement. And this is an old reference, so I'm sure it doesn't happen anymore. But I mean, you've got a 20 to 30% more, or you had a 20 to 30% mortality rate, not morbidity, mortality rate, if you show up as a kid in DKA at a non-major medical center. And, you know, it's not, it's never to knock these folks in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we've got states in this country, they got one endocrinologist for the whole state. And so we get it, but it's, you got to know how to put an IV in, get fluid going and get on the phone with somebody can tell you what to do. I can't even be anymore, you know, look at all the labs, but my job or our fellow's job is tell me the information. And as long as you're truthful about it and I can get it, we should be able to get these guys going. But the rate limiting step is the IVs right? I mean, you can't get a line in somebody. What are you going to do? And so, but I never see that. That's usually not a problem. It's a problem when they get over here and they've been traveling and everything's kind of messed up. And then, you know, then, and then you guys have to put in a, a new line because this one was, they just got in whatever they could. Cause these kids are, we know they're so bone dry, but anyway, that's my advice for, for anybody out in the community is, is if you're in a community and you don't know a major center to send a kid, whether you're in Georgia, whether you're in California, I mean, that's got to be the first thing. If I was working in, in an emergency room and I only have expertise in a few areas like general pediatrics, second I see something, I'm calling somebody who's an hour away, four hours away. But it's just too easy to, to not mess up if you do the basics and call. That's what I think. I mean, we tell the parents, it's interesting. The parents are afraid to call us at three in the morning because their kid's low. That's what we hear. It's like, 
Do you know that for us to roll out of bed at two in the morning or three in the morning and answer one of your questions without a correct answer, somebody, you got the wrong person on the phone. I mean, most of what we do is relatively easy, whether it be home patients with their basic insulin issues or glucose issues or intensive care units with their questions. I mean, those are, you know, the kids that are toughest are these HHS, throw a cardiac problem in there, throw a renal problem. And then, you know, we can't just do what we normally do, like give tons of fluid. That's the time where, where I think my hands are really tied. Well, we got a kid who's got heart failure and kidney problems. You can't just give them a ton of fluid. But that's why we're in pediatric endocrinology and pediatric intensive because adults have a little bit different system. That's a great summary. And we want to highlight to our listeners that when it comes to the initial assessment and you're taking these transport calls, it's going back to the basics with your clinical exam, assessing their mental uh, status, as well as establishing IV access, and then transitioning the management to more of a team-based approach, coordinating with the outside hospital, the pediatric intensivist, as well as the endocrinology team. Dr. Fellner, there have been some reports recently with the association between COVID and type 1 diabetes. As a practicing clinician, what has been your experience? I mean, it's interesting. I guess over the year, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm on service probably once every six weeks or so, five or six weeks at a couple of, well, maybe I'm a little bit more at Scottish Rite these days, but I, you know, we, we see tons of kids with COVID and I'm not a hundred percent sure if they're having COVID when they show up or they had it a few weeks before. But I, I think, you know, the reality is, is that is COVID itself a trigger for either type one diabetes or for new onset diabetes or DKA and we actually have one of my colleagues, she was a fellow here a few years back, but Christina Cosson, she's collecting all the data on DKA and COVID uh, hospitalizations and COVID hospitalizations of our diabetes patients and COVID. And she's really trying to put together a pretty good uh, database uh, for uh, possible cause and effect information. But I mean, if you look at the, um, you look at the distribution of new onset diabetes, there's still the bimodal distribution where you get the first hump as uh, young children between probably four and six years of age. You get the next hump between 10 and 14. It's probably that four to six year age where COVID probably has a bigger impact because we believe that the four to six year old age, even though both groups probably have the same genetic or should have the same genetic reason or makeup who are at risk for diabetes. But then it's this secondary environmental agent or inflammatory mediator. Nobody seems to really know what it is, even though thousands of things have been looked at. But these kids who get some, whether they get COVID or some infection, there's some inflammatory mediator, whether it be a TNF alpha, whether it be, you know, any kind of um, uh, CRP, any of these things that, that you actually see that could be triggering it. But I don't know the data about number of kids COVID positive or, or had been COVID positive. I don't know that yet. I think that's still being worked on. I know they're getting good answers for adults, but we don't have all the data for the kids as far as I know yet. Dr. Fellner, as we conclude our podcast today, as intensivists, we work very closely with the endocrinology team to help transition uh, these children to a sub-Q insulin regimen, uh, especially when the NIN gap closes. Would you mind commenting on this uh, transition process to sub-Q insulin and uh, transfer to the floor? Sure. Yeah. The, listen, I mean, the, what's actually interesting is um, if you're in DKA and DKA is resolved, which would be anion gap closing, bicarbonate level, near appropriate, pH near appropriate, most of the, of the cerebral edema, even though there's a huge range for getting cerebral edema, if you want to blame cerebral edema on diabetes management, usually that shows up six, eight, 10 hours after 
the kid's perfectly resolved. And so even though they go to the floor and we're very comfortable taking them on the floor and I always remind our fellows, everybody is like, they can't just be fell asleep on, you know, they still get a headache. They can get a problem. You have to be wary of that. But getting to the, the transition is key because back when NPH was the intermediate insulin, I mean, it still exists. We just don't use it very often. Adults still use it more. We had to find a convenient time when to convert the patient from IV insulin to sub-Q insulin. And that is, you always had to do it at a meal because with regular and NPH or even Humalog and NPH, even before uh, Lantus or Basaglar, Glargine, before that became available, we didn't have a 24-hour insulin. We didn't have a basal insulin. So, so what's nice about the basal insulin is now you can just say, all right, well, if I'm going to give the Lantus or this 24-hour insulin right when we're stopping the fluid or even a few hours before we stop it, we know that that, that kid's covered for 24 hours with some basal insulin. As I mentioned before, you know, you don't need a ton of insulin to prevent ketosis and acidosis. You know, you need a good bit to prevent hyperglycemia, especially in relation to, to ingested glucose or uh, intravenous uh, dextrose. But you can give that Lantus anytime. And then when the kid's ready to eat, time for your Humalog. And uh, I like to do things that work out, meaning that I typically like kids who are on the younger side to get their Lantus in the morning. And I like the older kids to get their Lantus in the evening. And the main reason I do that is, it, but the problem is, is that if I'm on call and I know an older kid is in DKA and he's still at least got a six or eight more hours on his uh, IV insulin before he's going to correct. Um, we'll tell the unit, give him his Lantus now, even though he still has six or eight more hours on it, because I want him to get his next dose tomorrow night. Whereas the, the little child or the younger, lighter child, I'd much rather, all right, it's nighttime. The kid's ready to convert. Leave the kid on the drip. If it's two in the morning or midnight, they can still eat on the drip. There's no reason you can't eat on a drip if your acidosis is clear, but you stay on it and then you can do the Lantus in the morning. I mean, most of what my partners do and our fellows do is they just end up moving the Lantus dose to where they want it, but it takes some time to do that. You can't just say, we're going to give Lantus in the morning, but we meant to do it in the evening and then give them another dose in the evening. So you have to kind of like tease it. All right, now we'll, we'll, we'll stagger it. All right, today we'll do it at lunch, tomorrow. And, and for kids who already have a million things to do with their diabetes control, to me is the worst thing to try to do. You just give them another thing that, all right, well, I'm not doing this. Consistency to me is the key. But the converting to sub-Q, it's simply give them Lantus pretty soon when they're getting ready to, to be done with their IV insulin. And then I say, bring them a tray. Keep up. They're almost never completely hydrated. Their potassium is probably still going to be a problem. And so I want them at least on the half normal or the normal saline with KCL until they're fully hydrated and the potassium is normal. But once the tray, before the tray comes, because we do this commonly, we say, all right, give the child this five units of Humalog and then eat. Well, half the time the nurse says kid's not eating. So I say, if the kid says he's hungry, make him eat a cracker and water when his pH is resolved. And if he can tolerate not throw up, then he's getting a meal and we're giving him a shot before he eats the meal. Now, how we change the fluids and adjust it, I could tell you how I do it, but some say we want them on the IV insulin for at least 30 minutes past till that shot's been working for 30 minutes. The reality is if they're well hydrated, Humalog insulin given subcutaneously works in five to 10 minutes. It's not regular that we used to do this for that takes 30 minutes to work. 
So I never get that. And I'm all about speed when it comes to there. And I respect what goes on in the unit. You guys have a million things to do. And we're supposed to know this pretty well. I want the kid out of there. And I want everything done as quick as possible and as few mistakes as possible. So that's, that's my preference is to, is to get a tray there, make a kid show they can eat something. They're all starved because, you know, they haven't been getting any glucose into their cells for at least for the new patients for weeks or months. And for the established ones for at least 24 to 48 hours, who just haven't been taking their insulin. And so that's pretty much what I, uh, how I look at that. But uh, we definitely do give these kids a ton of things to do, um, which would lead me off on some other tangent if you wanted me to discuss it. But just our overall management is, uh, is challenging. Dr. Fellner, this was an excellent discussion today, highlighting DKA and HHS. To summarize key diagnostic elements between the two, in HHS, we have higher glucoses, milder acidosis, mild ketosis, and increased degree of dehydration. Both conditions will have insulin and fluid management as key tenants of therapy. However, in HHS, patients may require increased fluid resuscitation. Sounds pretty good. This concludes our episode today. We thank Dr. Fellner for his expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast, and we welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. Additionally, we are excited to announce our new website, PickYouDocOnCall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PickYouDocOnCall is co-hosted by Dr. Pradeep Kamat and myself, Dr. Rahul Damania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.